Welcome to Covert Contact from Blogs of War, where each week your host, John Little, takes a deep dive into the national security, intelligence, and technology stories that are shaping our world. All right, welcome to Covert Contact. This is episode 103. I am your host, John Little. I'm excited about this one today. I mean, we've We've been catching up with, uh, you know, so many of the folks that were on uh, Covert Contact before the hiatus, and and uh, this guy is one of my favorites, uh, Stilgarian. He's an Australian journalist who's been covering internet policy uh, for more than a decade. He's widely known in Australia and actually beyond Australia. Uh, amazing cyber security and digital surveillance coverage, and uh, most of that is available on ZDNet. Uh, so I highly recommend uh, you go find that, and I'll link to some of it um, in in the show notes, which you can find on covertcontact.com or blogsofwar.com. Uh, he's frequently on uh, TV and radio, and uh, he's active on Twitter as Stilgarian. Again, I'll link to that in the notes. Uh, and he has his own podcast where he gets a little bit uh, more ranty and raunchy than he'll be here today, and that's called the 9 p.m. Edict. Stilgarian, welcome back. Ah, oh, pleasure to be here, John. Great to chat again. Uh, it's been a while, but uh, we've we've kept up a little bit through Twitter and things like that. But uh, you know, I missed our, our early earlier chats. Um, you know, I just want to tell a story here real quick. Uh, the reason this show is back uh, is because you tweeted um, you tweeted some pictures of some gear, and then I I love gear. Uh, I love all the tech and all the audio recording stuff. I I would. Sp- <laughs> I have no skills, <laughs> no musical skills, but I would, you know, I just love the technology and the production stuff so much that I would buy it anyway. Um, uh, it's it's a weird affliction. But uh, anyway, you, you tweeted some of this new podcasting gear that was out, and uh, I did some research after you did that and found out that this, you know, the Roadcaster from Rode, which is an Australian company, is, is sort of taking taking podcasting by storm. And uh, 30 minutes later, uh, you know, I think I'd spent $3,000 and a whole new studio was on the way, a new MacBook, a new Roadcaster. Um, I don't know why I made that decision. It just sort of um, it seemed like a good idea. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, you gave me so much encouragement early on, which I really appreciated, um, you know, a couple of years ago when I was getting started, uh, or more than a couple of years ago. And again, you're the reason the show is back. John, you are, you are way too kind, but I, I will throw into that, yeah, road kit, R-O-D-E. Well, it's, it's O with a slash through it for some unknown reason. Right. Um, yeah, it's, it's a fantastic little company, uh, you know, here in Australia and, you know, they, they just make good audio kit. Um, and the the Roadcaster is, I think, one of the first, like, here's a little podcast mixer and recorder in a single box, which allows you just to do everything. I mean, there's a few more on the market now. Right. Um, but, yeah, a lot of people swear by Rode. Uh, I love it. And um, it's completely transformed the way I look at it. And that's why I went from no episodes to, um, you know, seven or eight and, you know, the first couple of weeks. And it's, it's really just changed the way I look at it and, uh, you know, really changed my perspective. So, you know, I'm, I'm back in the game for the long term here. Um, and so we're going to be doing this uh, for quite some time. Um, this is fabulous to hear, John. 
And again, um, your encouragement early on and your advice, you, you, you know, unfortunately we, we, we tried to get an internet connection and it wasn't great, but you, you have an amazing radio voice. You've done thousands and thousands and thousands of hours. Yeah. I used to be a producer for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, uh, back in, back in the analog days. Uh, but it's, yeah, I enjoy it. It's fun. And it is a shame we couldn't get, uh, like a digital link up today, but eh, next time. Yeah, you sound great, and you sound better than me, even when with when you're hobbled by technology. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Sir. So, you know, one interesting thing I I also want to mention I haven't talked about it in a while, but the second highest concentration of covert contact listeners is in Australia, uh, and I attribute you know a lot of that. You know, I did some very specific coverage, and there were some uh, interesting uh, folks, you know, from talking about counterterrorism and special forces and. You know, their policy stuff in Australia, which was really well received. But, you know, you and I, I think my conversations with you early on really, you know, put me on the map there. And uh, so hopefully folks in Australia are happy to get some uh, local content. Look, I I think so. There is a really quite a strong interest in such things uh, in Australia. Uh, It is another country, I mean, yes, part of the Five Eyes Alliance and all that, but it's also a country that is traditionally a very early adopter of technology uh, and even you know back to VCR days if anyone remembers what they are uh, Australia had the highest kind of market penetration of that sort of gear on the planet and and it's still very much a you know a, a technological society which is interesting and in the field of uh, digital surveillance of cyber security I mean the phrase punches above its weight is such a cliche but it, it generally is and uh uh, with the Australian Signals Directorate, which is the equivalent of the, the NSA, has started to open up a bit more about its, its work. And we found out, for example, that back uh, in Afghanistan, uh, the Australian Signals Directorate, the ASD, was responsible for, uh, in the seconds before a major battle started in Afghanistan, and people who know the history of that war will, will immediately figure out what it was, all the Taliban leaders' phone, mobile phones and comms suddenly went dead seconds before the attack began. Right. That was that was Australia's doing. And apparently the well, they claim it was the first time that a straight up hack like that had been part of tactical operations anywhere in the world. Interesting. Um uh yeah, it's kind of sur- I'd be surprised if it was the very first time, maybe the first time they want to talk about it, but um still <laughs> exactly. Yeah, still very, uh, very cool. No, it's, yeah, Australia is always on my radar and I have, you know, I know you and I know a lot of other folks, especially in counterterrorism and and the fields we talk about here, uh, there. And so I pay attention, quite a bit of attention to, um, uh, you know, what happens in Australian security. And it's, it's really kind of unfortunate that we were, you know, the show was on hiatus for a while because, uh, things have really gotten like, you know, with the encryption debate and uh, the cyber stuff, it's really ramped up over the past couple of years. Yes. In fact, when we last spoke, it was uh, a couple of times in uh, late 2018 and something, uh, no, 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 we'll talk about this. The uh, Assistance and Access Act, as it was known, although it's sometimes called the TOLA Act because its full name was the Telecommunications and Other Legislation Amendment Brackets, uh, Assistance and Access in Brackets, B 
bill before it went through and act later. That was that just being finalised in Parliament. It came into force uh, at the very end of uh, 2018. And now, of course, we're, we're a couple of years into that. Uh, and we've got the arguments about, OK, does it need modifying? And also we've started to see what law enforcement has been doing with it. So it's yeah, it's been an amazing last uh, couple of years. I know this is an area you're passionate about, and we share that. It's incredibly complex, right? There are no easy answers here. Like governments need, they they need to do their job, and they need to be able to have access to some information, especially you know information that we want to you know not we you and I, but bad actors want to deny them. And there's so many options for those folks now um, uh, with really basic encryption and and things like that. Uh, but at the same time, you know, it's just this incredibly dangerous, slippery slope territory with, uh, you know, privacy and civil rights and everything else. And there's really no, uh, there's no easy way out of it. Like, you know, there's going to be give and take and it's going to, you know, the, the lines are going to be, battle lines are going to be pushed back and forth from both sides. And I think, you know, I think we're destined to just like constantly be in that state. But what What's your take? Because Australia has pushed very aggressively into this territory. Like, you know, are you are you concerned? Yeah. Do you feel like they're balancing that that sort of um, those competing uh, priorities um, in the right way, or are they are they overstepping? Australia, for all of its um, the way it likes to see itself as uh, the word here is the larrikin nation, a bit anti-authoritarian. You know, we were the the prisoners rebelling against the the overlords in the early penal colony days. Right. That that really is that really is a load of, of garbage. I mean, Australians love being cops on each other, and we've seen that during the the COVID nineteen lockdowns. But no, I don't think the balance has, has gotten right because every time we get some sort of national security legislation uh, go before Parliament. It is rushed through. There's always a crisis, right? And in, in fact, with the Assistance and Access Act, that was all, no, we need to, yes, yes, you know, the Labor opposition, you've got some good amendments there, but we need to pass this law as it is because it's getting up to Christmas and that's going to be a busy time for terrorist activity. Um, and it turned out not to be, but then, you know, maybe that's because our spooks and cops were very effective. The, the laws themselves, weren't really used. I suppose I should I should actually explain what what's in these laws, right? Because this yeah. is the, the controversial thing. Um, the, the the key concepts are a thing called a, a technical assistance request, a technical assistance notice, or a technical capability notice. Now, a, a, a technical assistance request is just high communication provider, and that's defined incredibly broadly. I, I'm potentially even down to you know, your website or mine, uh, you're a communication provider. Can you please give us access to these messages because we can't get at them because they're encrypted or stored somewhere else or whatever? So that's a request. A technical uh, assistance uh, notice, obviously, is an enforceable one. You must do your best efforts to, or a reasonable effort to get this for it. And a technical capability notice is okay, we want you to create a way of getting messages in the future so we can hit you uh, with with an individual um, notice uh, on a message-by-message message or a, a set of messages basis. Now, the, the, the controversies here were that, first, 
this incredibly broad definition of communication provider. Secondly, this huge grab bag list of what kinds of assistance would have to be given. Uh, and there was even a fear that individual employees of companies would have to help put a backdoor into software or whatever. Now, now our Department of Home Affairs has said, has said, no, no, that's not what we mean at all. We can't serve these notices on individuals, brackets, unless they are the, the, the sole grader of a company like you or me. Uh, you know, we'd have to serve the notice on the entity, the, the overall company. And the third one is unlike, this is very similar um, law in the UK, the Investigative Powers Act, but in the UK, they have a double lock system, as, as they call it, that these things have to be signed off by both a judge and uh, I think it's the Home Office, uh, but but politics as as well as, as legal side, a, legis- uh, uh, a judicial side. In Australia, the, the power to create these things was with the agency head, so the head of the Australian Federal Police or ASIO, the, the counterintelligence organisation, without judicial, uh, like no one's having a, a, a say in that. Now, that said, there had to be an over, overarching warrant to get the communication. So the process was get a warrant and then we'll say, okay, uh, we need these communications now, we've got a warrant. And then if the, the telco or whoever said, well, uh, it's encrypted, we, we, you know, here they are, uh, they could then come back to someone and say, okay, now you have to give us help getting at the contents of this or the contents of the device or uh, under another part of the act, uh, uh, a computer access warrant. So, yeah, we can now uh, hack into uh, these computer systems and so on. So it was that lack of oversight independent of the agencies that uh, was and still is a sticking point. Uh, and we do have a, a, a person or an office called the uh, Independent National Security Legislation Monitor who looks at all this stuff uh, and comments on it. And he uh, has indeed proposed that, no, you need to get something like a, a judge or in Australia a thing called the Administrative Appeals Tribunal who can also issue warrants. I won't go into the bureaucratic structure of that. But uh, that's the recommendation up at the moment. But uh, like yeah. governments around the world, uh, Australia is, is really busy thinking about the coronavirus more than national security legislation. Uh, and before that, uh, Australia had like the most massive bushfires in the entire history of the country. Right. Uh, and that was also a, a cause of concern. So what happens with that now, uh, we will see. Yeah, and it really gets into that territory that the United States is really familiar with right now, which is, you know, when you have these loose frameworks, um, you know, the government that institutes them might have the best intentions and actually uh, care about process and and civil rights and self-police to some extent. And, you know, it's more or less okay. Uh, But then you can have a government come in five years later who... Uh, trashes norms, throws them out the window, um, and uh, uses those loopholes to their advantage. And uh, we don't have to go into what's happening in the United States. I think everybody's pretty clear on that, and that's that's a risk you run. Yeah, I mean that's been the whole demonstration that we've had from the United States, in particular, but to a lesser extent in the UK and some other countries. We've been reminded in very harsh ways 
how much of our institutional structure is based on uh, conventions and norms rather than actual black letter law. Yes. Uh, and if you have someone who's just quite prepared to say, oh, I'm not going to do that, and, and like, what do you do? Uh, You're stuck. Particularly <laughs> when that same party controls Congress, right, or the Senate or whatever. Um, and in, in Australia, we, we, we have had a, a problem with oversight of, of some things simply because uh, our current Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, back when he was Minister for Immigration, and of course Australia uh, you know, <laughs> runs offshore concentration camps, let's call them what they are, for uh, asylum seekers, he just said, we won't discuss that, it's an on-water matter. So anything about you know, how many boats had come and how many people had drowned and how many had been turned away and blah, 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 that was just on-water matters. And and that just got extended to anything that was near the water. He wouldn't talk about. <laughs> right. um, and he's <laughs> he's applying much the same logic with this. He, he'll he'll make a generic statement in response to a question. A journalist will ask, ask a clarifying question, and he just says, "Well, I've already asked that." Yeah, and I'm I'm not, not, well, yes, words came out of your mouth. <laughs> I'm afraid I can't discuss that. Uh, I just drank a glass of water. Uh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and, and with it, you know, Australia hasn't descended to uh, that the kind of level that other countries have quite yet. Um, but again, we have these conventions. The, the National Security Legislation Monitor can table his 200-page analysis of, of what the law is and what its laws are and what it should be doing. We also have the Inspector General of Intelligence and Security who looks at then the operational aspects, and I'm, I'm told the, the current um, uh, incumbent there, I'm told uh, by actual operational people uh, at the ASD that going up before her and having to explain to her why they did something is not, you know, a light-hearted conversation. She's very incisive. And we have a thing called the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence Security, which is obviously like a, a kind of joint house committee uh, that, that you would have in the US, and it can recommend changes. But all of these things, the, the incumbent government and parliament can ignore them. I mean, it's, it's political pressure, and it relies on an active opposition and active minor parties to really demand that, that this not happen. Uh, and we are in a situation where in the Senate uh, we do have a balance of power so that the, the government is not totally in control of the Senate and the Senate can block things and, and, and so on. But there has to be the will to do that. And the current Labor Party opposition in Australia has a habit of complaining and pushing against uh, national security legislation flaws all the way up to actually voting for it because they don't want to be wedged into uh, a, a soft on security situation. Yeah, and it's really in everyone's best interest, you know, to have these things sort of more more thought out and and actually have the the process around these things, you know, formalized and encoded. Uh, because you know, when the winds shift and you know these these uh, these checks on power get out of balance, or you know, you have malicious folks in 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 office, you know, everybody is potentially at risk at that point, and so it. You know, and I know we're not going to get politicians to think about, you know, these kinds of, uh, uh, the, you know, hypothetical problems uh, that are, you know, potentially years out. But anyway, there's my uh, my rant on that. Yeah. Well, 
there was a, a very small sign of potential change um, just recently because one of the, the laws in Australia was related to building a national biometric database. So obviously we have a, a federal one for things like uh, passports and visas and so on, but the states do driver's licenses and fishing licenses and all of that. Right. Uh, so the, the idea was to build a kind of, like, let's integrate that into one big mother of a database. And it, it was given the wonderful name, The Capability, uh, <laughs> which is not Orwellian at all. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> we, I, I know. But the, the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security in, in a very rare bipartisan statement, sent all the legislation back. Not They didn't send a list of amendments. They just sent that back and said, no, this is all wrong. You haven't got the privacy controls we want. Rewrite it and come back to it. Um, now, again, technically, the, the government could ignore that, but if the government tries to put through legislation that the PJCIS doesn't like, that's not going to get through the Senate. So <laughs> going back to the back burner again, it's really hard work. Like, uh, I, you know, I, I have a tremendous amount of sympathy for um, governments, especially, you know, non-technical politicians and folks trying to, to sort out this. Because, again, like, you know, the, the dynamic here is one of, of, of um, all sides having to give something in order to, to strike the appropriate balance. And so it's not, it's not easy. Um, and that tension, there's no, there's no solution to that tension, and it just requires people to do again the hard work and to think about it from and all perspectives. With, yeah, and with the uh, Assistance and Access Act, Labor did cave in, as I say, at the very last minute before Christmas uh, 2018, and that was weird because they had been speaking in Parliament at great length about how they would not vote for it, and then at the very last minute, the government offered a deal and said, okay. You vote for this legislation uh, and these these uh, anti-encryption powers, and we will go softer on bringing asylum seekers into Australia for medical reasons, uh, as opposed to leaving them on uh, Christmas Island or Nauru or Manus Island in Papua New Guinea, which was the process up to then. And and I do know that Labor politicians uh, who had not been a direct part of that decision by their leader were very very angry. So what do you think Australia is doing doing right? I mean, because there is there is a lot of interesting activity, and like you said, it's forward looking uh, country in terms of technology. Uh, what do you what, I think, what do you see in this that you like? I I think some of the best bits date back a few years now uh, because we were one of the first countries to put together an integrated cybersecurity strategy, which went beyond uh, merely looking at like the day-to-day operational aspects of, of uh, threat intelligence sharing and cleaning up the mess after a breach and so on, and, and right. the government assisting critical infrastructure providers with that. The original 2016 strategy uh, which uh, was produced under the, the leadership of the then Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, who, as an aside, he is very much a genuine enthusiast for technology and building the future and so on. Um, that strategy also included building up Australia's uh, cybersecurity industry, so helping companies sell quality-made Aussie cybers to the world, and, and that was spun out into uh, like a great little incubator agency which 
which has identified a couple hundred cybersecurity startups and is uh, helping promote their wares internationally under the auspices of the Department of Trade. Um, and also a very proactive diplomatic strategy. Um, and again, we were one of the first countries to have an ambassador for cyber affairs to, to go out, uh, and, and work in the region in the, we call it the Indo-Pacific now, don't we? Um, to build a number of uh, bilateral treaties with China, with Thailand, I think with Vietnam, certainly with Indonesia and so on. Oh, he's uh, he's someone I want to get on covert contact at some point and was actually on my list. Uh, Dr. Tobias Deacon. Yes. Yeah, no, very interesting role. Uh, and, he would and be very, very happy to do it. Yeah. Yeah, um, he would be very happy to do it, uh, as would his offsider, uh, Johanna Weaver, who's our rep- cyber rep at the United Nations. So that's the the, the great thing about talking to diplomats is their whole job is to give Australia <laughs> perspective on the world. So right. they're always happy to chat. No, uh, yeah, and he's, uh, you know, he deeply understands this landscape, and um, it's it's very interesting to see um, the outreach. Uh, like you said, it's been, been some horsepower behind that. So that's all been great. The big news this week, though, is that finally the 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 update to that cybersecurity strategy was released literally like two days ago as we're we're recording this and and, and two and a half days uh, until people will hear about it uh, through your podcast. Um, it's kind of not as good as the previous one, shall I say? It's not as like, there's nothing bad with it, but it really isn't anywhere near as forward looking as the strategy from from four years ago. Now the political level. Uh, that's partially because uh, Scott Morrison, as Prime Minister, doesn't really care about the cybers. Uh, and in fact, under Turnbull's uh, leadership, he actually had an assistant minister for cybersecurity reporting directly to him. Now we don't have that. Uh, cybersecurity has just been subsumed into uh, the Department of Home Affairs, which is our equivalent to Department of Homeland Security in, in, in your part of the world. And that Department covers everything from, you know, border protection and customs uh, to the federal police to uh, to cybersecurity policy. And the current minister, uh, Peter Dutton, is uh, far from being an expert in these matters, shall we say. Uh, and, you know, even when he was launching this policy the other day, the policy itself is fine. It's, it talks about uh, creating a, an integrated... Um, real-time threat-sharing thing between the government and, and critical infrastructure, similar to what the UK is building. Uh, it has um, a uh, uh, an active cyber defence program, again, which will be modelled on the, the UK's experience, uh, where the GCHQ and National Cyber Security Centre there is centralising and running things like the main name system and routing and, and you know, in real-time blocking off threats to protect their network. So that's all good. Uh, there's a little bit of money for research, uh, but there's, there's, no, there's no deadline for any of this to happen. Right. Uh, and the money they're talking about, which is, you know, they, they're throwing in $1.67 billion Australian dollars, which by my calculation is $1.2 billion greenbacks. Um, it's going to be spread over 10 years. And, I mean, <laughs> in Australia, we have federal elections every three years. That's three election cycles down the track. The budget, like the federal budget, is only ever three to five years 
in advance and can be changed every year anyway. So what does any of this even mean? And the bulk of the strategy really is just, oh, yeah, we'll keep doing all of those things and make it cyber better. So uh, it's an opportunity lost. It, it took a year nearly for this thing to come out. Uh, and yet, in my view, it's, it's underwhelming. Um, so I, I'm concerned that Australia will slowly lose this lead. Where do they stand? You know, one of the things that, that drives InfoSec people crazy and me crazy and it was a big problem and still sort of is in the United States is, you know, all these grifters that, that flood in and like try to push everyone into offensive cyber. Like the solution to all of our problems is offensive cyber. We're going to create cyber warriors and, you know, yada, 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 uh, which, you know, I have no problem with that. We need offensive cyber, but does Australia get the balance right? Do you think, uh, are they recognizing that there's really no use in having offensive cyber if you're not defending your assets? Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting question. And I, I have felt, and this is a purely gut feeling, that the balance in Australia has been uh, perhaps slightly better than it has been in the, the U.S. But right. the, the U.S. likes, shall we say, protecting, uh, projecting its power far more enthusiastically than, than Australia does. I think that's a polite way of saying it. Um, but no, I, and I think, Although Australia has tried to, again, um, mirror the British model by splitting off from the ASC, the Australian Cyber Security Centre, to, to really play uh, defence, as you would say, um, I you know wonder how well resourced that is because the, the balance in, in this <laughs> alleged strategy, uh, you know, they're putting another 500 people into the ASC uh, and, and the like, whereas the Cyber Security Centre seems to be being spread thinner by, by given jobs such as community awareness down to the small and medium business level, uh, which which is something that secret squirrel spooks are definitely not used to doing. <laughs> right. uh, so there's going to be a whole culture change problem, uh, you know, happening uh, within that organisation. And also the, the, the talk from the minister, he's not really across the whole critical infrastructure defence, which is a big component of the strategy, he's always on about chasing down the pedophiles and the drug dealers and protecting the the children um, and the evil is an easy, you know, the internet is an evil place and so on. You know, leadership counts, right? I mean, whoever is at the top running things, it's their worldview that makes or breaks the success that sets the balance, that sets priorities. Putting aside any comments about uh, Peter Dutton's uh, competence or intelligence or skill level more broadly. He was a former Queensland cop and he still tends to bring like a local cop mindset to these sorts of issues. Right. Uh, so it, it is, you know, this sense of hunting down the criminals. Can we pull the ASD's um, cyber offense capabilities into hunting down uh, criminals onshore, which uh, that's a whole new thing legally. So, you know, let's let's see some of that written down in law. Um, short answer to all of that is, yeah, I worry that, again, we, we don't have the balance totally right. Uh, the Australian National Audit Office has shown that the government departments are lagging behind, uh, implementing things like the ASD's essential eight things for protecting your networks. Um, that's going to get a bit more attention, uh, by the way, as, as part of the strategy. Right. So, uh, you know, I look at this, we have had some kind of hefty breaches. Um, you know, the, the 
the non-classified Parliament House network has, has been breached a couple of times in, in recent years. Uh, the Bureau of Meteorology, with all of its supercomputers, uh, has been breached, and we know that was China. And, hey, you know, let's have a look at this forward-looking weather data. Uh, and just like everywhere else, uh, I mean, other nation-state actors, but particularly China in this region, I mean, is scooping up whatever they can get their hands on. That's the strategy. Uh, and so to me, you, this, this kind of defensive side really needs to be looked at more from a cyber espionage issue right. than, you know, the whole cyber Pearl Harbor, cyber blitzkrieg, <laughs> as an Australian analyst has started calling it, uh, where everything gets shut down. I mean, that's, you know, yeah, that's was... a lovely fantasy, but, uh, you know, I, I don't see anyone doing anything quite that dramatic in, in the near future. No, I, I do see, a, I do get sort of a gut feeling from reading through the material, you know, that the balance is, you are striking the balance a little bit better than we are here, but it's the same problem, right? Yeah. That, that you always have with government, uh, or actually any large organization. The real work, the, the, the necessary work, the essential work of doing things like patching all your systems and, and like doing the, the IT sysadmin security basics and all of that stuff like it's tedious it's not glamorous it's uh not sexy it's hard to get money for it but you know you go you go to your military chiefs and you say i want to develop a cyber nuke and it's gonna you know i need 30 million dollars in funding and like the money just flows uh, <laughs> yeah uh, uh, and, and that's, that's always going to be the case right yeah. it's going to be uh, uh i mean that's human nature and yep. particularly uh, in organisations that have mostly male leadership, if I can say that. I mean, not always the case. Uh, as, and I will say that one distinct advantage Australia has in, in this regard, again, compared to other countries, although not you know with the US in this regard, I think the US is much the same. The Australian Signals Directorate has you know, a very even gender balance. It has uh, a, a wide mix of uh, other categories of people, shall we say. And, and it actively seeks out a, a diverse workforce uh, for that that kind of, of activity. Um, look, it, it remains to be seen. Um, there have been critics of Australia's strategy overall of framing cybersecurity in a national security context, uh, which you know, maybe that needs, needs to be a, a, a bit broader and, and look more at just day-to-day community levels. And I think the lockdown Again, the pandemic comes back to shaping our thinking on all sorts of things. We've started to see here, uh, you've had it there too, the ridiculous run-on toilet paper. That's one <laughs> of the first things that disappears from the supermarket shelf. Yep. Um, although there are actually reasons for that because toilet paper is cheap but incredibly bulky. It takes up a lot of space, so the supermarkets want to move it through and not have stock. So you only need to, to interrupt transport for a for like a week and suddenly there's no toilet paper moving yeah. from the, the factory uh, to people's bathroom. Yeah, and it's also like when people go shopping and they're panic shopping for uh, disaster supplies, like you can easily see that everybody around you has toilet paper, <laughs> right? So there's like this sort of lem <laughs> le lemming thing going on and it's like, oh my God, I got to get six rolls of toilet paper uh, or six you know, cases. Yeah, it's, it's amazing, uh, you know, what comes out and what happens with, with logistics. And I I will actually at this point give a plug to uh, uh, a friend and, and uh, author of uh, sort of uh, 
techno thrillers, John Birmingham, uh, an Australian writer, he's, he's got a, uh, uh, an audio book series coming up on uh, Audible, uh, only on, only there, unfortunate, but it is based on a kind of cyber pearl harbour attack on the United States and the whole logistics system falls apart uh, and all the militias come out to defend their patches uh, <laughs> and, you know, there's no food and whatever. And that came out like a few months ago and now, now, now the, the pandemic happened and it's, you know, I'm, I'm like, John, John, can you stop writing this stuff? It's <laughs> clearly causing the world to fall apart. It's very well researched and, you know, lots of, lots of gruesome killing is his, his style. It's John Birmingham. Yeah, I've been trying to write uh, dystopian fiction for years and uh, I get about halfway into a project and take six months off and then see that, see that it's happened in the news and then give up and... You know, I'm going to wait till the world calms down. There's no point in writing dystopian fiction in the United States right now. Uh, no, no, no. I should say I didn't mention the title of John Birmingham's book. The first in the trilogy is called Zero Day Code, and the second one is called uh, Fail State. Uh, and the, the third, the third volume is not quite out yet. When I asked about it last week, he said he's just writing the final boss battle scene now. Uh, I'd like to read it, and I'd like to I'd like to write it at some point. But uh, you know, only so many projects at a time. Uh, well, we all have so much spare time these days. <laughs> well, it, you know, I I did have a little extra spare time because you can't go anywhere. We're still, I mean, uh, I'm still sort of uh, in lockdown here, um, and that's why the podcast exists. But I'm going to draw the line there. Uh, it's enough. The podcast is enough. Uh, it fills whatever whatever gaps I have. Um, there's a lot going on, and now that we're podcasting again, you know, I'm going to expect you to come back on a fairly regular basis and and keep us caught up. There's a ton of stuff that we haven't gotten into that I would like to, but that I, you know, this podcast could run hours. Uh, we haven't even talked about China. Right, and the threat that that, <laughs> that, uh, that poses, yeah. and I'd like to dedicate. Uh, there's so much going on. Yeah. Uh, there's the whole deal, of course, with Huawei, which, which you and I haven't spoken about. Yep. Uh, and it's, cra- it's a crazy world out there, John, but yeah, I'm more than happy to come back. Yeah, let's do it. Um, let's let's get something on the books. And uh, I, I'd, I'd love to, you know, set up China for the next uh, next episode and, and sort of keep focus on that. That is a global issue right now, and uh, we don't pay enough attention in the U.S. Uh, about what happens in Australia and its proximity to China and how important it is, and um, and in that sense, uh, geopolitically. So, Belt and Road, uh, Belt and Road, it's, yep. it's all happening right through the region with with China funding five G networks and well port facilities, which doesn't really come within in this realm uh, for this podcast. Uh, but yeah. Uh, Electricity grids and telecommunications networks are very big business in the region for China. Yeah, and it's changing so much because of the pandemic too, right? Like there's there's just there's there's huge shifts going on here and and how they're viewed and how we're going to rebalance sort of economically and and from a trade perspective and how that Im- impacts apps and yada. Where you know we're we're going to run the risk of actually. Uh, discussing it all here so i'm going to stop and we'll uh <laughs> yeah I think, I think we better leave this one down John. That's, that's, there are too many rabbit holes we can yeah, go down 
Yeah. But I will, uh, you know, like I said, we'll talk after this and I'm, I'm going to get you booked for another episode if you'll commit to it uh, sometime maybe in the next couple of weeks. Uh, that would be good with me. Thanks very much, John. You have been listening to Covert Contact from Blogs of War. This podcast is produced, written, and hosted by John Little. Follow John on Twitter at Blogs of War and join the conversation with hashtag CCBOW. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.